last Lord's Day, we kind of ended our theme study of worship, but I reminded you that all of life is worship, and everything we do in this church is a byproduct of spiritual worship. And so we evaluated our worship together. And this is what I've learned so far through this series, and I think we're going to learn it as we continue on. Uh, everything's a byproduct of our worship. So last Sunday we started with evaluating our spiritual health in regard to worship. Today we're going to look at our lifestyle, the church's lifestyle, which is discipleship. But here's what I've learned so far. Two things are very, very clear to me. This evaluation has been unpleasant, and it's sometimes painful. Has it been that way for you? If it hasn't, then you haven't been listening. It is absolutely unpleasant at times. It's been painful. And again, if you've experienced... Thank you, brother. If, you, if you've sensed this a little bit of pain and it's been a little unpleasant, you know, we like to say, well, the preacher's been stepping on my toes. That's not my goal. We want the Word of God to stomp on your heart, right? That's what we want, to engage the mind and the heart. And the second thing I would say in my own life that I've been challenged, and I hope you have, and it is through the challenge that we actually grow. So if worship is the church's passion, and it should be, then discipleship should be our lifestyle. All of us have been privy to the series of questions that one might answer while sitting on that white piece of paper in the doctor's office. Don't you love that thing? You have to hop up on that bed that's kind of whatever that thing is, table, and that white sheet you're sitting on. No matter if you're sick or not, you're sitting on a white sheet, right? And uh, you are privy to the questions. And all those questions, usually by a nurse, practitioner, nurse practitioner, or whatever, they're going to ask you a series of questions. They're gonna, it's going to involve some subjects that have to do with our habits and our practices. And all of these have a direct bearing on our physical health. Have you had these questions asked to you before? Do you smoke? Right? And as Sam Cathy would say years ago, you've never smoked before a day in your life. The cigarette smokes. Forgive me for saying this, but you're the sucker. Amen? <laughs> All right. Anyway, that question, do you smoke? The next question will be, do you drink? How much exercise do you get? How much fast food do you eat? That's oh me, right? The nurse and the doctor is probing, and they're probing you to find out what your lifestyle is like. Why? Because they know that your lifestyle has a direct bearing upon your physical health. And so the particular lifestyle of the New Testament church is called discipleship. This church is nothing more or nothing less that an assembly of disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are. Worship is our passion. Discipleship is our lifestyle. Now, there are some erroneous views out there on discipleship. Let me give you another classic text. Don't you like those? They kind of preach themselves. John chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter 14. Tonight will be John chapter 8, 31 through 32, part 2 of the sermon that you 
must not miss. Okay, Part one is just one thing we're going to learn today is that discipleship requires supreme loyalty to Christ. Listen to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, notice the emphasis, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, I like the NLT, whoever does not shoulder his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Notice the emphasis. He's going to give two parables to explain. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count, it, count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and, deliber- and, and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Notice how Jesus will ratchet it up even higher here. This is kind of a disconcerting comment. So therefore, any of you who, would, who does not renounce all cannot be my disciple. Now, this is the unpopular part of Christ's preaching, isn't it? The popular side of Jesus is he loves everyone. The unpopular side is if you're going to follow him, it's going to cost you all. And so we have Luke's passage before us. Let me give you a few erroneous views of discipleship. One such erroneous view is that there is a difference between a disciple and a believer. How many of you, I'm setting you up, believe there is a difference between a believer and a disciple? Raise your hand. Hands everywhere. Okay. Another would bring to the table that discipleship is a higher level of commitment in the Christian life. In other words, you kind of enter in at first with a, uh, in a believer stage, and sometime down the line you become a disciple. In other words, a disciple is the Marines of Christianity. Faith is when I come to Christ and submission. Faith is... Me coming to Christ and I become a Christian by grace through faith, but submission is when I become a disciple. In other words, as a Christian, Christ is my Savior, but when I become a disciple, He becomes my Lord. How about this one? Discipleship is follow-up after a person makes a decision for Christ. Well, I want to tell you, each of the expressions is wrong. Every one of them. They're, they're common expressions, but each and every one of them is absolutely wrong. Being a disciple is not different from being a believer. I don't know if you read this somewhere else or you've learned this through tradition, but scratch that off. You know me well enough to know that we need to learn what a disciple is based on the Word of God, not traditions. And let me just say it this way. Sometimes not even by material you get from Lifeway. You better learn what a disciple is based on what the Word teaches It is, being a disciple is no different from being a believer according to the Bible. It is not some higher level of commitment that only a few attain. Faith and submission are not mutually exclusive. 
so that you have faith and then later down the line you submit to Him as Lord. Folks, you can't, according to the Bible, receive Him as Savior unless you've embraced Him as Lord. That is impossible. It's categorically impossible in the Word. So, discipleship is not follow-up after someone has made a decision. Discipleship is what makes a person a Christian, period. According to the Scripture. The the New Testament is absolutely, 100% clear and dogmatic on that point. Now, the verb, disciple, is used basically four times in the Word. The noun, disciple, is used 250 times. Let me show you. I'm plowing the ground, by the way. Y'all know me well enough to know that, right? Matthew 27, 57. Take a look at that text for, with me. Is, is, is the first verb form that we have. Matthew 27, 57 says... When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. That translates this, whom himself had been discipled by Jesus. It's in the verb, it's a verb phrase. There's another one in Matthew 28, and you ought to know this one, right? That we are called by God to make disciples. That is literally translated, as you are going, disciple the nations. And then look with me in the book of Acts, chapter 14. The verb form is used twice in Acts. Here's one of them for the sake of time. Let me just give you one. Verse 21 of chapter 14. When they had preached, notice this folks, listen. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, verb form, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch to strengthen the brethren. Do you notice how both preaching... And evangelism and discipleship are all three parallel participles. And why are they that? Because you can't separate the three. No amens? I hope you're just thinking about what I'm saying. I'm proving a point to you. They they had been evangelizing and they made many disciples. Evangelizing and discipling are not two different endeavors, but one in the same. When you evangelize, you are making a disciple. When you disciple someone, you are evangelizing. And then the noun is used 250 times, and it's used of someone who attaches him or herself to an individual, to a person, and they become the master of their life. And that's what's used to describe a Christian in the book of Acts. A disciple is someone who attaches him or herself to a master his whole life, and subsequently he mimics that person because of that attachment. If we bring it over biblically to that perspective, a disciple of Christ is a person who attaches him or herself to Jesus, and he is their sole master. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus gives some hard sayings, and he says to the rich young ruler, go sell all you have and you can come follow me. And Peter listens to this interchange, and Jesus says to him, well, he he basically tells the rich young ruler, you haven't even kept the first commandment, which means you ought to love the Lord your God first and foremost. You haven't even kept that commandment, even though you think you kept them all. And then what does, Peter's listening to this interchange, and he says to Jesus, who can really follow you then? And when we do follow you, what do we get in return? You know what Jesus says? He says, you get eternal life, Peter. Do you all understand that follow me, disciple, same word, 
To be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, means that you get eternal life. They're, they're the same. Jesus is trying to get us to understand what discipleship is. And in Luke chapter 9, crowds are following him. And they want to be his followers, but Jesus is not fooled, right? And he says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. If you do, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. What does that say positively? The only ones that get the kingdoms are a kingdom is the one who would put their hands to the plow and not turn back. It's the same as following Jesus. A disciple means not only do you get eternal life, but you get the kingdom as a disciple. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. You want this light in you? What do you have to do? You have to follow me, and you have the light of life. If you're a disciple, you have the light of life. So being a disciple, narrowing it down, is simply being a Christian. The first time the word is used in Acts 11, it's not a term of endurement. Now today in the U.S., if you're a Christian, you might get voted as some kind of politician in Ozark. Especially during voting season, because during voting season, you're going to show up to church. Because you want our votes. And you want people to think you're a Christian. Well, this is kind of quiet in here. So maybe the politicians around this area come to church every Sunday. And to God be the glory if they do. There wasn't that way in Alabama. <coughs> oh. But listen, in Acts 11, in Acts 11, they were, they were called Christians first in Antioch. What an awesome phrase. And that word called means that their vocation had something to do with this Christ. So they called them Christian. Their life, look, their, their life work, everything about them reminded these people in Antioch that were unbelievers. The unbelieving world called them Christian. And my question to you is this. Anybody ever called you a Christian because of your lifestyle? Are you living worthy of the name? And that's what happened in Acts 11. So disciples, check this out were first called, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. If you're a disciple, you're a Christian. Submitting to Christ is not a once and done proposition. Folks, I may say this for the next, until I die in the pulpit here at this church, right? I'll say this over and over again. When you trusted Jesus, that was the beginning, not the end. And, and so often we think that, hey, one and done proposition. I, I did that, Pastor. You talk to people out in the woods and knock on doors and you say, me and the Lord got this right a long time ago, made my one decision, and I'm all good, man. Once saved, always saved. I'm on my way to heaven. If you're not engaged in a lifelong process of being a disciple, then you're lost. Folks, I'm just telling you, biblically speaking, you want me to preach you the Bible and tell you, it just begins the process. And yes, it begins with a conversion initially, but it's a lifelong process. There's never a time in a true Christian's life when Jesus is not his or her Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, think about this. If you're a Christian today, then you are a disciple. But here's the stirring question we have to ask. Are you a healthy one or an unhealthy one? That's the best question. I mean, back to square one. Discipleship is our lifestyle at this church. There's no difference between a believer and a disciple. If you're saved today, truly know Christ, then you are a disciple. The question you have to answer is this. Am I healthy or unhealthy? Now, y'all ready for the sermon? <laughs> According to Luke 14, first thing you've got to understand, that discipleship requires supreme loyalty to Jesus. That's all I'm asking you to remember this morning. 
I'm going to give you some stuff to hang the outline on, give you some meat for the skeleton, but that's the main thing we wanted to take away from this text. Discipleship requires supreme loyalty. Here's how Jesus explains it. He says, it must be above all your earthly relationships. That supreme loyalty demands that Jesus Christ be supreme even above all earthly relationships. He used some striking language here. I mean, he uses a word like hate. He uses the words like mom and dad and daughter and sister and brother. All these words, and we're like, wow. Now, is Jesus stepping over the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother in the Lord for this is right? Is he doing that? Of course he's not contradicting it. He's not at all contradicting it. It's not contradicting his teaching on love either. You know, you think about the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And then he uses the word hate. So maybe you start thinking about, well, this is contradictory. Is, re- is Christ really showing love here? What he is trying to remind us of is that even the best and closest of relationships on earth cannot even come close to your love and loyalty to the king. It can't even come close. That, that supreme love for him is, is it's impossible to even put it beside your love for anything else in this world. And he begins with human relationships. Our love for Christ must supersede any and all loyalties. We all sense those familial relationships, don't we? And the loyalties wherein they lie. There are times when our loyalty to Jesus is going to drive a division. And Jesus said this. He came down from heaven. That's a Christmas sermon to divide. You say, well, that doesn't sound too nice. Well, folks, sometimes your allegiance to Jesus Christ is going to trump your allegiance to anything else. And that's what he's talking about here, your earthly relationships. Husbands, your love for Jesus supersedes your love for your wife. There's no comparison according to this book. Or you cannot be my disciple. I mean, this is pretty good, isn't it? Because I'm not making it up, right? I mean, that's exactly what Christ said. I'm giving you what the Word says. Husbands, you must love Jesus more than your wife. Wives, you must love Jesus more than your husband. I know you've been companions for years, and that love ought to increase the more you're married. But according to the Word, your loyalty and love to Jesus must be far superior than that. It's not a Christian, it's not the discipleship Christian thing to do when you put your spouse before your relationship to the king. No amens, not one. How do you feel in your own heart? I hope you're thinking about these things. It's actually idolatry. If you put anything before Christ, even your love for your spouse, it's in the realm of idolatry. Parents, we need to love Jesus more than we love our children. And folks, I'm telling you, around church life, And the way we are today with activities, i.e. sports, and all kind of things. I mean, I know I'm meddling now, right? We'll turn the world upside down for our kids, but we will rarely ever turn our lives upside down for the king. And it's nothing short than idolatry. You're welcome. Folks, I have to tell you the truth. In our world today, it's almost like teenagers run the world. And oftentimes, they run the church. Because the mentality is we have deep affection for them. We love our children. We watch them grow up, and we we know they're eventually going to leave the home. But I'm telling you, folks, discipleship requires that you love Jesus 
more than you love your children. And it's not even close. Your love has to supersede that, that much. If your relationship is not built on that premise, then you're not pursuing the right relationship. It's quiet in here. Some of you are thinking, let's go back to the worship. We liked it better, right? (laughs) Discipleship requires supreme loyalty to Jesus. By the way, if you love Jesus, you'll love your wife, guys. You'll love your children the right way. Amen? Amen. If the umbrella is right, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, if you're a family controlled by the Spirit, husbands will love their wives like Christ loved the church. Wives will submit unto their husbands. And don't you love this? Ephesians chapter 6, children will obey their parents. That's the way it looks when you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So, above all earthly relationships, supreme loyalty. Number two, your love and loyalty to Jesus must be above yourself. Y'all see it in the text? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, down verse 27, for whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. Think about this for a moment. It's got to be above self. Other places in the scripture, like Matthew 16, 24, says it like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now, some of you think, I got this one down. I'm a selfless kind of person. Do you really believe that? Have you been around you a good bit of time, like I've been around me? I think the, the, if we just could pinpoint the person in this church who pours him or herself out in life in so many sacrificial ways, more so than we could ever imagine, you're still going to find within that person a residue of selfishness. No matter who it is in this church that pours himself out the most for sacrificing for others, I'm telling you, there's a residue of selfishness in everybody in this church. But according to the Word, you've got to disavow your allegiance to you if you're going to follow Jesus. That's what it means to deny self. The NLT says it like this. To be a follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. Folks, what does it mean to deny yourself? We're studying the Word this morning, aren't we? This is good stuff. What does it mean to deny self? Well, do you remember when Peter was warming his hands by the fire? And Jesus was before Caiaphas. And a little girl was by the fire. And she said, don't you belong to the disciples? Y'all remember that? Don't you belong to the disciples? And what does uh, Peter say? Don't you belong to Jesus? Aren't you a follower? And what does Jesus, what does Peter say? I don't know him. He denied him. There's the word. Deny. You know what it means? It means to disavow your association with. You di- Peter disavowed, not once, not twice, three times, he disavowed his allegiance to Jesus. Now let's use that same Greek word right here and think about this. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have to disavow your allegiance to number one in your life, and that's you. Right? You've got to set that allegiance aside, and he has to be your absolute number one allegiance. And Jesus said it. You can't be my disciple if you don't deny yourself. That allegiance has to change. In like manner, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, disavow your connection with self, and you're connected with me 100%. Y'all do know there's a difference in self-denial and denial of self. 
Self-denial is nothing more than asceticism. That means I would want to discontinue certain foods, which I like to eat them all, right? And dis- you know, I would say, well, I don't need to do this pleasure or this activity, and I do these things because I think it gains me favor with God. Well, folks, that's works-based all the way around, and that's asceticism, and uh, that's not what denial of self is. There's a difference in self-denial and denial of self. To deny self is different. That, that's the part of you that's always going to say, what's in it for me? Whoo! Really? That's what real discipleship is. It's to take that allegiance and say, God, I'm not concerned, most importantly, about what's in it for me. I'm concerned about what's in it for you. And that's what our church needs to get to here. That's what real believers do. Their attitude is not, Lord, what's in this for me? I'm coming to First Baptist Ozark because I want the buffet style. I'm coming to find out what this church can offer me. You're missing it. It's not what this church can offer you, but what you can do for the king. Why? Because you've disavowed that allegiance. You're no, you're no longer number one, but Jesus Christ is number one in your life. It's that sense of self-right of determination. And if you're a believer, the only rights you have today are the rights that belong to the king over your life. Now, I know that you know, God's arms are long, and if you try to box with him, guess what? You're going to get tagged in the nose every time. But if you really belong to Jesus, your life is going to be a life that's not self-determined, but you're going to turn to focus toward Jesus. Galatians 2.20. Y'all know this verse? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, it's not I that lives. Finish it for me. But Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a disciple. That's how you live. He's living through your life. He has the exclusive right to your life. The first time I ever heard this preach was from an evangelist named Sam Cathy. And boy, he rattled my cage. I was a 13 or 14-year-old sitting out in the church. And I thought to be a Christian means that I got my rights. I'll do what I want to do, live like I want to live. And I learned quickly that I just changed masters. I didn't belong to the enemy anymore. I belonged to Jesus. Right? And the fact of the matter is, the Bible says you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. You belong to Jesus. And then he says, you got to pick up your cross. You see it? you got to shoulder your cross. Well, this is kind of funny, isn't it? Some of you Baptists in here before have said things like this. Well, that's just the cross I have to bear. I got rheumatoid arthritis. Right? That's not something funny either. That's bad stuff. My mom suffers from it. But I want to tell you something, folks. That's not the cross you bear. Some people think, well, it's my obstreperous boss. Or that cantankerous neighbor of mine. Just a cross I got to bear from now on. Right? As a matter of fact, I'm thinking about putting our house on the market to get away from those neighbors. Even though they do need Jesus, they get on my nerves. Right? (laughs) And some of you men, you think that your cross is your mother-in-law. Right? Now, how many of you think that any of those things would have been in the mind of those disciples when Jesus said to them, shoulder your cross and follow me? To a first century disciple of Jesus Christ, the cross would have been an ignominious, cruel, barbaric, ignoble instrument of death. That's exactly what it is. 
So to carry a cross meant your attitude must be this. Where am I going to die? Well, we're not hearing this preaching in our world today, are we? Folks, when he says shoulder your cross, your attitude must be, what, have I ha- what do I have to die to? Pick up your instrument of death on which you're going to die upon and follow me. If denial of self is a, action, is a step that we take, it's a decision we make in our life to deny self, then to pick up your cross has to be an action you take, right? You make a decision. I'm going to deny myself, disavow my allegiance to number one. My allegiance goes to Jesus. But when he's saying pick up a cross, that's an action you got to take. Not just a decision you make, but an action you take. And you pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Folks, this would have been similar today to somebody saying to this. Pick up your, pick up your electric chair and follow me. Pick up the thing of your execution and follow after me. What, what could be some... What, what could be some ramifications of picking up your cross? I mean, think about this. When you shoulder it, you're dying to self, sin, and the world. Well, how would we look if we're going to do that, young people? Well, when everybody else is engaging in sexual immorality, and they think since everybody else is doing it, if it feels good, do it. It's okay to partake of sex before marriage, right? The Bible says no. And if you're going to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, you're going to stand and you're not going to do that until you're married. Why? Because you belong to Jesus. That's good preaching. Right? What does it mean to have allegiance to Jesus? Well, when all the other kids at school are telling dirty jokes and cussing and laughing and think it's funny, you're the one, you're not going to be mean-spirited, but you're going to be the one that's going to stand up, stand up for Jesus. How about on the job, men? When everybody's cheating... And stepping on somebody's back, I mean, the adage today is get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the rest. Well, when everybody else in the world is doing that, how are you going to live your life? Folks, that's what it means to bear your cross. You look at it, you know it's going to cost you, and you do it for the king. That's what it means to take up your cross. And then he says, come after me. You know, that's, that's a permanent action. That's continuous, but permanent. Right? We're coming after him, not starting uh, like a quarter horse, but we're a marathon horse. Uh, and so many Baptists are that way. You just, whew, we streak off, we've, we've got a, a mad dash, and we're done, but that's not what a disciple does. I like John MacArthur's words in the gospel according to Jesus. He says this, a true believer signs up for life. He goes on to say, the bumper sticker sentiment that says, try Jesus, is a mentality that is foreign to true discipleship. Faith is not an experiment. It is a lifelong commitment. So our loyalty to Jesus must supersede all of our loyalties. And quickly, think about this. At this point, Jesus is going to give some parables. And what is the parables about? Calculated loyalty. You've got to think about the cost if you're going to go to war. You've got to think about the cost if you're going to build a building. Is everybody listening? We're going to land the plane here in a moment, okay? But, but what is this? This is calculated loyalty. Now, we're living in a generation where everybody wants the benefits of the gospel. I mean, who would not want forgiveness of sins? The righteousness of Jesus robing us. Full acceptability before God, right? The benefits are amazing. The fact that you've been... Think about this thing. In the past, God justified you and made you righteous. 
In the future, he's going to glorify you. He's going to remove even the very presence of sin one day. When he saved you, he dealt with the penalty. And one day, in glory, he's going to deal with the very presence of sin. And right now in this world, he's also dealing with the power of sin over your life. And that's called sanctification. These are great, great, great gospel benefits. We love all those things. But there are also some incredible demands of the gospel. We love the benefits, but there are some demands of it. And you've got to be calculated. You better make sure you're going to do this. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a lifelong commitment that says, yes, trials and tribulations are coming my way, but for the sake of Christ and His glory, I'm going to stick in there. Right? It's a calculated loyalty. Loyalty. And now do we presume by this that we're able to stand against anything on our own? Oh, absolutely not. Because the king said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But it does mean that we've got confidence in our Savior. That no matter what comes our way, whether it's trials or temptation, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Master, will see us through. There are great benefits in the gospel of being a disciple. But there's also some demands of that. And in our day, we're forgetting about the demands. Corey Ten Boone said, God never pays the train fare for his children until they're about to board the train. you got to think about that for a moment. Real disciples realize the cost involved. They depend upon Jesus every single day to get them through life. The question is, am I willing to do what the Master asked me to do? Just imagine how many false conversions have taken place in churches because nobody stopped long enough to say, count the cost. As a matter of fact, when we give the gospel out today, we say, sign on the dotted line. Look at all the benefits you get. Don't you hate this? God has a plan for you. Really. I got better news for you. God has a cross for you to bear. How many times have you witnessed to somebody and said it the way Jesus said it? There's a way that we evangelize that robs Jesus of his deity and his glory and what the true gospel is. We, God never says in the word, just sign on the dotted line. The fact of the matter is, he says, look, you know, most evangelism strategies that say, just say yes to Jesus and sign on the dotted line. The majority of those folks are not true believers. They didn't stop and count the cost and say, you know, what is involved in being a child of God? What is involved in being a disciple? And again and again, and Jesus hammers us over and over and over again. There are many would-be followers, but only those who deny themselves pick up their cross and follow Jesus. Notice that. Isn't that profound? Follow. wonder what that means. <laughs> follow Jesus is what happens. And finally, Jesus is going to say something that is really disconcerting. Here's how he ends it. So therefore, any one of us, who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And some of you are immediately thinking about possessions and about money. Well, it has that idea, but it's, just, it's not just material and money. It will be anything that you cling to above Jesus. And folks, get this right. God, it, it, there's nothing wrong with having possessions. But if your possessions possess you, then we're in trouble. If our possessions possess us, Jesus said, if that's the case, you cannot be my disciple. It means that you must give Christ control of your life. He owns our possessions, right? And in our world, in America, we have so much. And it's so easy to be possessed by our possessions. And if we are, then our loyalty to Jesus is in vain. you got to love Jesus more than you love your nest egg. Or your 401k. Or your retirement program. Your love for Jesus has to supersede that. It has to supersede that nest egg you think is going to take you through life. But I'm telling you this, that nest egg can be gone very quickly. 
Can it? Some of you have been down that road. Who cares who dies with the most toys? You can't take it with you. But that's the way we live. We want to die with the most toys. But if you don't love Jesus with supreme loyalty, you'll spend eternity in hell. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. We must conclude that a healthy disciple, above all, number one, if you're going to be a healthy disciple, there must be a supreme loyalty to Jesus Christ. Can we all be caught in things as a disciple that is not showing loyalty? You better believe it. I mean, every single day when we wake up and you're a believer and you've been in the Word and you've prayed and you've sought the Lord, everybody in this, if we do real good soul introspection, we can say, Lord, I hadn't been the disciple today that I need to be. Is that not true? I mean, we're, so, we're all sinners saved by grace. If you're a disciple of the Lord, yes, you're going to fall on your face so many times that your nose has a permanent upturn, Right? Yeah, we've all been there. It's not the disciples won't fall and won't fail. But here's what you're going to always come back to. You're going to always come back to square one. Look at me. And square one in discipleship is this. My supreme loyalty to Jesus Christ supersedes any other thing in my life. Do you sense that when you're living your Christian life and you sin against the Father and the Holy Spirit convicts you and you get that right with God? Aren't you thankful if you confess your sins? He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you. You know, that's not a salvation verse. That's a fellowship verse. You know, uh, John is about sonship. First John, you know, you'll always be a son and he will be your father, physically speaking and spiritually speaking. But you know what happens? There are things we do against our God and our God cannot look upon sin. And so we get, the relationship doesn't change. Sonship doesn't change, but fellowship does. And all of a sudden, you sense it in your life that you're not in fellowship with your father. It's like my dad would tell me what to do, and I'd say, I don't want to do that. He was still my dad, but the fellowship wasn't good at all, right? That's when we would have a woodshed revival. You ever heard of that? <laughs> my dad would do the preaching, and I'd do the screaming, right? We know what that looks like. Well, if you're saved, one of the greatest signs that you're born of God is that you're convicted. When you're the disciple that, that's unhealthy, you want to about face, come back to square one and say supreme loyalty. I cannot be your disciple unless I'm willing to do these things. Isaac Watts. It's love so amazing, so divine, that it demands my soul, my life, my all. I like the old hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee. You ever read that one? Just think about this. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of your love. Oh, that's what a disciple does. Listen, Take my voice and let it sing. Y'all remember that sermon? Always only for my king. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. Take my silver. Can you say this, Baptist? And my gold, not a mite, M-I-T-E, would I withhold. Listen to this one. Take my heart, it's thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Discipleship. 
It's the lifestyle of the church. It requires supreme loyalty. Does it mean we're not stumbling and stammering disciples? Just read about the ones in the Bible. Oh, yeah, you're going to stumble. You're going to stammer. You're going to have difficulties in this world. Tribulations are going to come. But you come back to square one every time, and your loyalty to Jesus supersedes any other loyalty in this world. And tonight, we're going to learn number two. Discipleship requires abiding in the Word. But with heads bowed and eyes closed, I kind of tricked some of you, and I said, is there a difference between a disciple and a believer? And people raise their hands. Well, biblically, there is no difference. The best question we should ask ourselves is, God, am I a healthy disciple? Am I today a healthy disciple? Or am I unhealthy? Just be honest before God. I mean, you can say anything before the preacher. Uh, We can say anything before our spouses. But what would you say before Jesus? If he asked you the question, are you a healthy disciple or are you an unhealthy disciple? Well, folks, here's the great thing about it. If you're saved today, you can come back to square one with supreme loyalty to Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's our testimony, right? As God saved people. So, some of you, my question to you today is, how many of you would say to me, God has spoken to my heart, and I know I'm a Christian, I know I'm saved, but I need to think about supreme loyalty to the King, because I know things have gotten in the way of my supremacy and my love to Jesus Christ. Slip your hand up if you're that way this morning. Hey, I got my hand up. Don't look so spiritual. Put your hands up high. Put them up high. Don't be afraid to. You know what? God will grant that prayer of any saved person who says, You know what, Lord? I want you to be the supreme loyalty of my life, no matter what that takes. I hope that's your commitment today. Maybe you're here and you're lost, and you've heard the gospel over and over and over and over again. Count the cost. I'm telling you, folks, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. He is the most valuable possession. He's that eternal possession, that treasure that is worth more than anything else in this world. And I hope that you treasure Him. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is anything. He is greater than anything life can offer you now. And He is greater than anything death can take away from you when you die. That's Jesus that we serve. He's our Savior. Would you live for Him? That's what He's asking you to do. Let's stand to our feet, hymn of invitation. If you're lost today, would you trust Jesus only as your Savior and Christian? Get tired of being stirred and start being changed. Amen.